This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, what are you watching? Nothing. It's not your business. You move, you move that screen pretty quickly out of the way. Listen, what happens in my bedroom stays in my bed my bedroom. I mean, that's fine and fair and everything, but your bedroom, I'm using air quotes here right now, has been the ship's console for like the last three weeks. So All right. something needs to change here. Well, you can take a peek, but uh, there might be too many te- I was say testicles. I was going to say tentacles. <laughs> Keep it in. Tentacles or testicles, there's probably too many of them for you. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. This is the best cold open ever. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. So somehow it has used its powers to transport us across time and space. And now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Get Carter. One day, a professional killer went home to visit his family and found his brother murdered. Now, who killed him? I don't know nothing. Listen, the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter. A man with unbridled hate. Do you want to be dead, Albert? For Christ's sake! Big thanks to our patrons, of course, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy podcast. Dave, we're returning back to jolly old England, to the British film scene, you know, back in 1999, when we were talking about the movies of 1999 last season. We discussed Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. This, I feel, is like the progenitor of some of that stuff that Mm. Britain would become known for, some of its crime dramas. So I want to know maybe history of like how much other British crime stuff that you're familiar with. But mostly, I want to know your history with Michael Caine. Uh, And you can do his voice (laughs) if you'd like. Oh, me and Mike Michael Caine. I I just like Michael Caine from being old Michael Caine because he's in, he's Mm. like ubiquitous. He's like the British Sam Jackson. He's in a lot of films. Yeah. Uh, many of them are good, uh, I think. I enjoy them. I don't know. So I know, I think everybody knows of Michael Caine, but I have never watched young Michael Caine unless mm. I have seen one of the war epics and didn't realize like who was in it when I was younger. You you strike me as someone who has seen Zulu, right? <laughs> You've watched Zulu. Yeah, I just have it uh, right here on, <laughs> uh, beta, on Laserdisc, Betamax. Nice. No, I've never heard of Zulu. Yeah, British crime, this is before my era. So I'm, if I pan through... The 80s and 90s, what is a prolific British crime drama? I mean, after Guy Ritchie, I liked a gangster number one or uh, like Paul Bettany. That was, that's a, and Malcolm McDowell, who we spoke about this year. Mm-hmm. That's a movie that I liked before that I probably won't like watching now. This is from a article from vulture.com. Ooh. 
what is this? This was written on January 22nd, 2019, so fairly recent. This is their, the 15 essential British crime movies, okay. is what it's called, okay? Hit me. Tell me if you have seen any of these movies. <laughs> I, I can hear in your voice that neither of us have, <laughs> but let's do it. So there's The League of Gentlemen from 1960. Oh, not The Extraordinary Gentleman. No. No. Okay. We have uh, Get Carter from 1971. We're about to watch it. Uh, I think this is a bit of a stretch as far as crime drama, but A Clockwork Orange from 1971. Right, we did watch that. Crime drama? Mm. Uh, the First Great Train Robbery from 1978. Mm. Uh, the Long Good Friday from 1980. The Hit from 1984. Mona Lisa from 1986. We have Lockstock here from 99. The Limey. Yeah, I uh, saw Sexy the Limey. Beast. Saw Sexy Beast, Beast is great. Uh, it was okay. Eastern Promises is, is that quote British? unquote British. Well, it was fun. Everybody British, but Cronenberg is not British. No. Uh, Layer Cake uh, in great. Bruges. In Bruges. In Bruges is amazing. It's a great movie. Not, is that British technically? Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and then the Red Riding films, which I think was a, actually a television series technically, but. No. In Bruges. Anyways. Great. In Bruges is the movie where I decided I didn't hate Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell. <laughs> His problem, I thought, I learned after was faking an American accent. Made him Deadwood. I agree. I think he's better when he is allowed to be Irish oh, rather man. than he's so forcing good. himself to be American. Yeah. I mean, you know, I like minor Minority Report, etc. But as a leading man, there's something wooden about him, like in Miami Vice. But watching that and his acting range, his comedic timing, that was a good movie. Well, I mean, we've talked about, this is not about this movie now, but I mean... The f great thing I love about Colin Farrell is he is like the great example of someone who, when yes, when I see him Bruges, I'm like, oh, he's a supporting actor. He's a great supporting actor. He's funny. He's charming. He can carry scenes. He's not a leading man, and he should never have been forced to become a leading man because that's not where he excels at. And that's no slight. Like there, that is a talent that some people have and some people don't. But oftentimes, I think that sometimes what happens in Hollywood is someone is like, "Oh, you're so good in this one scene. We're not going to make a whole film around you." And it's like, no, 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 no. The reason they were great is as they could just do their thing for that one scene. And we've talked particularly about historic Hollywood. I, I mean, I, I wonder if the standards are changing, or we just need a historical eye on this. So in twenty years, we we may think this is this is just how Hollywood works. But the people that become stars that transcend the screen tend not uh, always to be the best actors, but have some je ne sais quoi, some quality that, you know, like Jack Nicholson, would you say he's the greatest actor? I, I don't know. But you would say that every mm. film he's in, you know exactly who, who you're getting and what you're going to get. And uh, yeah, if Colin Farrell starred in a film about a character in Ireland, in England, and he just got to be loose. I think it would be good, honestly. Because like you said, as a character actor, you can, if you build it around his strengths, that's great. But in Hollywood, they don't do that. They hardly write movies. All my best robot friends are now screenwriters. So, um, <laughs> well, it's too bad. So my history with Michael Caine is kind of similar to yours. The, honestly, my real first introduction to him was at the 2000 Academy Awards when Four. he won his Oscar for the Cider House Rules. Honestly, that is the first time I actually have a vivid memory of Michael Caine because at least it was framed that way. And this, again, is like from the point of view of whatever I have been, a 16-year-old kid watching that ceremony and all the jokes being, oh my God, it's like it's the return of Michael Caine. Mm. Michael Caine is back. Have you made a, like a great film here? And then making fun of the fact that he was in Jaws 4 and all these other bad movies and stuff like that. 
To the point where, like, when he went, I think he even apologizes for being in Jaws 4. And that, was, that seemed to kick off this uh, renewed career resurgence. And then, and then Christopher Nolan basically has used him in every single one of his films since The Prestige. Yeah. Or maybe I don't, one, of the, one of those films. I can't remember prestige. which film it was. Yeah, yeah. I just don't that, the Prestige or The or Inception, whichever one came first. Uh, I'm prestige. On. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of his movie before Prestige. It doesn't matter. But yeah, he was definitely in that film. Maybe it was Batman. Maybe the first Batman movie came up before that. I can't sure remember. It doesn't matter. Before Christopher Nolan starts using him in every single one of his films. This is like his little magic bullet, the mm -hmm. John Ratzenberger, if you will, of uh, the Nolan film verse. And now I feel like he's gotten not just old Michael Caine. I find if you've seen him in the last couple of films, he is now like elderly Michael mm -hmm. Caine. Like he is. Apparently people age. Yeah. I'm just saying that there's a clear distinction like. Early Michael Caine, kind of middle-aged Michael Caine, old Michael Caine from like the last 20 years. And now we're getting to elderly Michael Caine where it's like, you're here for maybe a scene. That's it. We're not going like to structure Freeman. a whole film yeah. around you. Yeah. Talking about these films on my shame list, I keep talking about over the years. Like I have not seen Alfie. I have not seen the original Italian job. All these ones that were like really big in his early career. The one that I have seen and is on my list of favorite films of all time is a movie that comes out a year after this in 1972 called Sleuth. It's him and Laurence Olivier, really the only two actors in that entire movie. Or it's just them for, I think, 95% of it. And I love it. It's one of my favorite films uh, of all time. It's great. So that's my only other purview of like young Michael Caine. Although I think he's like in his thirties. Yeah. <laughs> so I like I mean, like we talk yeah. about young Michael Caine, but it's like he's he was in his mid thirties in nineteen seventy one and seventy two. Yeah, doing the research on this a little bit and seeing some pictures of when he first broke out and what made him a sex symbol, and you're like, oh, he actually was good looking yeah. when he was in his twenties. But like everybody in the 70s, when you're getting into your 30s. Smoking and drinking well, for they have the last thing. 15 years. Yeah, we did it. Uh, we talked about him last year, but 80, 80 cigarettes a day he's averaging. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to retain a lot of youth if you're smoking. What is that? <laughs> three or four packs a that's day. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of. I think about anything else. Like if I told you I chewed 80 pieces of gum a day. <laughs> Like, you're right, like you have yeah. you have a problem. What is going <laughs> on with not you? Not Barucasol, who's a no, violent it's the other Bogart. one. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Eighty anything, and uh, and he was he's a heavy drinker, etc. So mm -hmm. uh, he looks old, but he's kept he's he's alive. You know, mm -hmm. contrary to your expectations of somebody that uh, abused sure. his body that much. I'd like to abuse your body. Uh, how, how about the movie Get Carter, though? Have you heard of this movie before? Yes. Do you have a history with this movie at all? Well, I remember when Stallone made his uh, right. dumpster fire. Uh, they talked about how it was a remake of this film. But in that era, it's hard to get your hands on any kind of historic you know, source material. It's not like today where you can stream it or rent it, etc. Right. Um, so I didn't really have an impetus to go look for a film from 1970. I just watched the uh, Stallone mm -hmm. I, do we call it a movie? Oh, have you seen the Stallone movie? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know you'd actually seen I, it before. I watched it. Uh, I don't know if I paid theater prices, but I watched it when it came out. Yeah. I hope you didn't. I watched it this week and we'll talk about it at the end, but it is not good. No. <laughs> it's not a good movie. No. I mean, it was probably 20 years ago I watched it, but I just remember, I think it's like blue, gray, and black, the acting shit, and uh, the story doesn't make sense. He gets beat up a lot more, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well find Him out. and Mickey Rourke uh, fight a few times. Right. Oh, Mickey Rourke. 
not like post wrestler Mickey Rourke, but uh, no, no. <laughs> problematic Mickey Rourke. All right, let's keep going. It's the exact same thing with you. Like when that remake came out in 2000, I remember the conversation being around how like this is from uh, an early Michael Caine movie called Get Carter of the Same Name. It's this like highly regarded British film from the early 70s. Why are they remaking this in an, in a, from an American point of view? So that's kind of the only context I have. And yeah, just like you, like, I don't know if people remember this and probably not. But uh, as I was getting into the film, there was a way to source old movies, but it was not the best way, which was I could go to my local blockbuster and be like, I'm looking for the original Get Carter. And then they would say, well, we don't have a copy. Of course they don't because no one's renting that movie. But you can buy it sight unseen for 30 bucks and we'll order it in for you. Oh, no. And it's like, uh, <laughs> like if I've not seen the movie, do I really want to pot commit $30 right. for a VHS uh, to, to watch this movie? And it's like, <laughs> that's the question you have to ask well, yourself. And most of the times it's to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Well, my question to you is, A, the fact that you know that this is possible, how many, I shouldn't even say it, A, I'll just say the fact that you know this is possible, how many times did you say yes? Uh, not a huge amount. I would say at least 10 times wow. or so. Uh, do you yeah. remember what, what you bought? Sight unseen? The biggest one I remember is Duck Soup. So the uh, the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. Wow. Because again, I was trying to collect like the 100 best films of all time from the American Film Institute. And even though some were being sent to me, I was on the Columbia House mailing Columbia list. Columbia House, baby. I was like, these ones, like these are the ones I really want to get right. quicker. Okay. So You're a bigger nerd than I thought. that one. Yeah. Yeah. That one. And I'm trying to remember another one. Like probably like on the waterfront or something like okay. that. I probably okay. interesting. Did. All right, so yeah. all our listeners, Kyle's uh, Kyle's a huge nerd. That's right. I spent thirty dollars on a VHS. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do this here then. Uh, I really want to get into this and understand more context about this film. So let's go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about Get Carter. Space is so gloomy right now. It's like all overcast and gray feels like we're in britain oh wow that's both you know, not racist but stereotype stereotyping mm. that's awful also you're correct it does feel moody and dark and uh cockney cocksure i got well, let's I got go eat some this. unappetizing food that for some reason tastes very very good Dave, we are, of course, are here in the advertising section, which means that uh, I need to let you know that Colin Dave versus the Machine is available. No, <laughs> the Colin Dave versus the Machine. <laughs> I mean, it is available if you want to keep I mean, you say it's available on Apple Podcasts, Dave, unless you, if you didn't know that. No. Self-promotion is the best promotion. Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. I know what you can be thinking at this time of the year. Cold drafts, flickering lights, and where's that leak coming from? It's gross. If you've ever... I'm, I'm sorry. That's just, that's just what happens. If you've ever wondered what's really going on in your home, Rumi's Ask a Home Inspector Service can help. Usually, it's murder. Connect with a certified professional home inspector by phone or video call and get your questions answered. Rumi will let you know what's easily fixable with a little DIY or when you might need to call in some professional help. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and book your Ask a Home Inspector appointment today. You know, I, I know we haven't watched it yet, but you know who could have used Rumi's service? Who's that? Uh, Dave from Straw Dogs. <laughs> that's next week, Dave. Jeez. Sorry. Yeah, 
deep and rich. You know, uh, you brought up that we're part of the Alberta Podcast Network. And, you know, I think this week we could talk about one of our other podcast friends, mm. uh, one of our supporters, actually. It's a conspiracy podcast. Wow. And uh, I think it would be best, I don't know of your opinion, to let them tell you about it instead of me mucking it up. So play the clip, Kyle. It's a Conspiracy is the podcast where we lay out the beliefs behind selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more. We do our best to present these without coloring them with our opinion until the end, where we let our feelings fly. We also do beer reviews, chat about geek culture, and whatever else strikes our fancy. Good times. And we're a part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. Okay, well, Dave, we've sat down. We, you know, got on our Macintoshes and went over to the UK and Apple II, uh, <laughs> the classic. Not quite. We uh, we plotted the streets of North Umpershire or wherever the fuck this place takes place. No, they were weren't they in Newcastle? That's right. That's what it is. I don't know. Something upon the Thames. Oh, that's that's all a pretty big city now, matters. and uh, they're still pretty tough. So I, I wouldn't fuck around yeah. if we ever get a. Uh, a listener from Newcastle, he'll be swim the Atlantic Ocean and fight me. <laughs> <laughs> they might. Uh, so yeah, general thoughts first. What are your thoughts on the movie Get Carter? Uh, I think the first thing that ran through my mind is that this was like the British connection a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I was surprised at. I think I couch texted you at how this is a much cooler time in British film than the British film era of the 90s, <laughs> where everything looks like it was shot for TV. This actually has oh, I see. a cinematic quality to it. Uh, but at the same time, it is pretty jarring. I think for me, until the very end, there were a lot of opening scenes that I couldn't understand why they were so graphic. But now I have my mm. own concept of why they're in there. And I, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I think, I think uh, Michael Caine is pretty tough. There's very problematic things that his character is prone to do but i think that's supposed to be the way he's living so it's not an excuse and not apologizing for british gangsters but as we saw john wayne punching his sons in one film there are things that people did that apparently were more acceptable in 1971 than they would well, be now in a, yeah in a way i think this does serve as an interesting counterpoint to the, to the argument that we had during the uh, Dirty Harry episode, mm. where I do think this is a gangster, of course, enacting his own sense of justice. But the movie never in any way like says, we agree with him yeah, and he's his not a journey of, of revenge, yeah. right? And uh, in fact, he is actually held accountable in a way to the crimes that he commits. That all being said, there's, this is a great thing that's happening in this episode I don't know of the last time this happened. You like the film and I don't. Nice. <laughs> I actually really did not like this film very much at all. I did not have a good time. I should preface this. And yes, of course, Dave, within our fiction, we just sat on the couch and watched this together. I was not in the best of moods when I sat down to watch this film mm. either. Yeah. So it, uh, it did not, you know, grab me and, and, and present me with like a, a quality entertainment as I sat down in an already bad mood. It's a grind. Yeah. It's a grind. That being said, like 
the 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 positives I will say here is that I think that Michael Caine is absolutely like dynamic in the lead role. Like it, it, I understand why he was a leading man for so long. I think also one of its strengths is the unraveling of the mystery. I actually didn't even understand what was happening for probably the first 25 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Like I just couldn't even get a handle. Like I don't even know what he's doing. Like what is he doing? What is he going after? What is he trying to discover? Uh, it kind of slowly revealed itself and it's like, oh, okay, okay, I understand how this is all fitting together now. But I like that. I liked it kind of slowly piecing it over. It makes you work for but, it. But, you know, I'm thinking back on 1971 as a whole. And if we're just looking at crime dramas, the two big ones that jump out to me are Shaft and The French Connection. And I think Shaft is more fun. And The French Connection is definitely a better cinematic experience. Like it's a better shot. It's, you know, um, better acted, yeah, it better feels yeah, yeah. better, better in act. Yeah, better supporting actors, all that kind of thing. And so I was left kind of just wanting more. And then when it comes to the very, very final scene, so like, you know, spoiler for a 50 year old movie here right now. Don't do it. Don't do it. What if they, what uh, if they're about to press play? <laughs> do it now. Push play. Watch the movie. But the very end, you know, he gets shot through the head, which is yes, shocking and everything. But it just felt like it was more of like, oh, what's another way that we can like subvert people's expectations rather than it feeling like it was like leading up to that point in any way. It gets a little bit too. I don't know, ingrained in its graphicness. Like even that last little bit of him, like they're trudging, like mm, him chasing torturing. after that guy. Mm-hmm. Like they're going through the mud and they're going up the hill and they're going through this thing. And it's like, just shoot them already. Like, I don't care. Like just get to the point where you're enacting your vengeance. Um, this is not the car chase scene from a French connection no. where it's at least visually interesting what's happening. I, I was asking myself the same thing and I agree with you. I mean, this is not better than either of those two films although as we talked about our revisionist thinking you know i'll probably have to amend my shaft score mm. i mean it was hard to watch that first without sure the coding right we didn't even i didn't even know what we we're getting ourselves into <laughs> we had just watched films from 1999 which is a big year that's me making excuses that final chase so to speak i also was sitting there like why don't you just you got a giant shotgun you're apparently crack shot but yeah. then uh, it remind i suddenly remembered that they talked about how this guy had force drunk his brother to death. And by the time he chased him up the hill and I was like, this is ridiculous. And then he, I was like, why was he even carrying the bottle of whiskey when right. he got out of the car? And then and finally when it hit, I was like, oh, is it, is it done the right way? No. I mean, it took 20, it felt like 20 minutes to get, you could yeah. do that. But with, not that long. Yeah, but, yeah. You could chase him on the beach and just, but you know, that retribution is interesting. I, and I agree too, like, I'm glad in, uh, European and British films that they're not scared to pull that punch. I think American films often shy away from just closing off. I mean, we were just chatting off offline right. about how Americans can't just end a story. They seem to always want to leave it to a sequel. But this idea of like introducing uh, a ringed assassin for like one scene and all of a sudden he gets shot in the head, it is a little weird. But I was happy to see Michael Caine die, if I can put it that way, because I didn't want this film to be like, uh, wait till part two, where he's got to have his revenge and, uh, you know, get Carter again. You know, it's it's good to kind of put that together. Um, I mean, again, it it is going back to that Dirty Harry idea, right, about this person going after their own justice. But then, yes, leaving up for like four additional sequels so, so he can kind of do the same thing and shoot a bunch of people. Uh, they weren't interested in that. And we'll find out when we do some of the backstory here that that was a bit of a fight, actually, to even include that ending at all. I, I'm not surprised. It, it does feel a little 
It, it feels a little off from the uh, tone of the rest of the film. Like it's just very abrupt. It's yeah. Like so, there's a ten minute foot chase, and then you're dead. It's kind yeah. of a weird thing. Um, the other thing, I mean, the violence against women for sure. This film is about uh, the sex trade, the porn, uh, pornography, and uh, and sex trade. If you haven't watched the crappy Stallone version, having watched that, I knew where this was going to go, and that might have kept me a little sure. longer in a little bit longer, knowing that this was ultimately going to be about the abuse of his brother's daughter. If only there was a word to describe your brother's daughter. Um, at the hands of this. Uh, you know, gangster cartel that uh, makes rape porn, which sucks. Well, but. what's what's interesting, I think, is looking at those those two very different eras and those two very different types of filmmaking between the British and the American style. Looking at this and the remake that happens, what twenty nine years later, because in this movie, in the nineteen seventy one version of Get Carter, that actually really started to bug me of like the gratuitous leering that the camera felt like it was doing. And I'm not even talking about like the the porno scene that he's watching. In that case, I'm like, okay, I can f- you can at least somewhat justify because the plot is showing the rape on camera of his niece and partly why his brother gets killed in the first place. So at least there is some plot reason for that to be there. But then we just go up and there's just a woman washing her breasts in the, in the tub and it kind of just stays there on her chest for a while. I'm like, what? why are we here? <laughs> what is this doing here for us? I came up with a theory, which is... All uh, right. I suspect the director and the writer did it intentionally to challenge the audience about what they were being aroused by. Because you're watching a feature film where every sequence of sex is pornographic. He does a phone sex thing and you're actually showing this woman mm-hmm. like masturbating and getting off. Yeah. He has sex with the uh, with the hotelier uh, in a very pornographic male domine- domineering way where she's like begging, you know, all that kind of tropey stuff mm-hmm. from a porn. You have the woman bathing herself, the gorgeous woman in the in the washroom that he's about to kill. And by the end, I, I too was like, why is this why is this so visual and only the women? But I think for me, I started thinking, this is kind of making me uncomfortable because I have to question why the one is better than the other. What is the difference between seeing a woman in a narrative being fondled versus them watching? Because that opening sequence too, I mean, there's a penis in it, which is crazy. Yep. And they're just casually sitting around watching this porn. And it's kind of jarring because you're like, you have no context on why. Michael Caine is completely disassociated with it. He doesn't give a shit. And then he just makes his casual exit. He's like, I got to go and check out this thing. And uh, I, I have a feeling in my mind at the end that that's what it was supposed to be doing. I don't know if it 100% works for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a different uh, question. And I mean, yeah. I, I, congratulations on trying to be an apologist for this movie, Dave. <laughs> I really appreciate it that you're <laughs> standing up for it. Because there is that interesting piece when he goes like buck wild insane when he discovers that his own niece is inside of a porno itself. And, you know, him his disregard for even women, like calling them whores basically throughout this entire movie. It seems like, yeah, he only really cares when he discovers it's his own niece, but it's other people or other women doesn't doesn't yep. do anything for him. I don't know. I just want maybe there to be a more interrogation into that idea that this movie could could do. To finish off my thought though, as far as like the remake goes, what I found fascinating in that movie is that there's no sex at all. Like, there is n- there's no nudity. It, you barely even understand that there's a porno even happening. Like, they, they, tell, they have a, a pornographic website drugs? that they talk yeah. about. But drugs, but, like, there's never anything graphic. And this also goes to my thing of, like, 
the desexualization of American film, right. or at least like big budget American film that seemingly has been going on for like the last couple decades. It's all on TV. It, now. This, yeah. yeah, it's on TV, but it's like, it's just super stark, but it's like, oh, like almost too much sexualization here in 1971 and like nothing at all. It's like, there should be like a bit of a happy medium here to be able to tell this story. Well, if we get a chance, we'll have to see what happens in the 80s. And this is the problem with the uh, coding concept I keep coming back to as we're getting more in tune with what 1971 is and getting used Maybe to. Maybe just, just because we have been talking about that for the last few years. What do you mean by coding, Dave? There's a language in which we communicate with each other. And there's a language in which visual mediums or, uh, conver- or uh, whatever you want to call it, art works mm-hmm. between people. So if you go to the Louvre and you have no idea what classic Renaissance art is supposed to look like, Perfect pronunciation, by the way. Who cares? And and nobody's going to understand it, right? You need to right. have uh, like essentially a dictionary. You have to understand the language in which it's explained to you. And sometimes that can be so pretentious that people uh, kind of tut-tut about it, but without actually experiencing it. For movies, I think the coding is A, like uh, we're trying to get sort of a political and a cultural grounding, what it's like to be a 1971 human being. But in this case as well, we have interpretations from uh, England. Last week, we have interpretations of Italians, interpretations of Mexico through the lens of American filmmaking. You know, it's there's right, so right, many right. different interpretations or uh, just veneers. I don't know. Well, I mean, what's interesting about that too, like even just, again, going back to the remake a little bit, yeah, it was a little bit of a mind flip I had to turn to myself like, yeah, what was going on in film in like the year 2000? Mm. And then it starts like, this is such a 2000s film just by the look of it and the shots and like how it's structured and stuff like that. But I could see like an 18 year old, right? Who wasn't even alive in the year 2000 being like, what is this? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know I was there. Even <laughs> I was like, I don't know what this is. But, uh, but at least I, I have that shorthand. So I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I can like hand wave this away a little bit because it's like, there's also worse examples of this style in other movies I've seen. I think too, with coding, uh, the way I'm using it is that, you know, it's flexible and I don't think that there's a defined structure to it. And I think when filmmakers in our case, lean too heavily on a very immediate context, that's when we see films age really poorly. Mm. But when you look at, like I, we were just talking uh, a couple weeks ago that I just watched 12 Angry Men, that's a right. film that uh, transcends its coding. I, you can't even tell what year it's shot, except that, uh, you know, I'll look at- It's in black and white. It's black and white, but I kept thinking with these social issues and the way that they're approaching it, this is not a 40s or 30s film. And it turns out it's 1957 because they're addressing- uh, everything, all the different biases of the time. And I think that, uh, yeah, like the Kurosawa films, you, you just, uh, Spaghetti Westerns we talked about last week. There's something about the way Sierra, uh, Sergio Leone makes a Western that still can connect with a modern audience, I think. This is a film where there are tones that still work, this sort of noir mm-hmm. violence. But then, yeah, like the way a British man is, like knowing what Newcastle is supposed to be like, understanding what it means to be a Londoner, right? Uh, never mind a mobster. Those are things we can't really comprehend. Yeah, and that's also the hardest part about like really not being super in tune with the UK. Right. You've seen Mary Poppins. That's all you need. The way that we are, for instance, with America, where if you say, oh, he's from the American South, you can, there's whatever, there's things you switch off in your brain, like this is what I'm expecting, and then you can subvert that or not. But at least I understand that. Which I believe in the UK, the North is kind of how they view what American South yes. is. And then yeah. they understand all that yeah. and they can do shorthand for that, that I might miss 
because I don't really understand the nuances of that social order over there. Well, that's this film. I mean, as much as yeah. they try to uh, voice it, you know, like, oh, I, you can't go up there and there are these type of people. And when he gets there, he's a Londoner. And, you know, I mean, we don't, we, we don't really understand it. And I think that's mm. also a coding issue where a British person being raised in that context is going to get closer uh, if they agree with how it's interpreted. If you watch a film, we watched, was it Range Roads? And we were watching a film about sort of mm. Drumheller and et cetera. But if somebody from Edmonton watched that and it starts in Calgary, are they going to really connect with... How, it's hard to say, right? Um, we have vastly different experiences, Graham, even in cities that are close together. So um, right. movies have to be careful with that, I think. Yeah. I mean, to ask the question directly, I mean, we've kind of been answering this or posing that question over the last at least a couple months probably now. Do you think that is a problem? Meaning like having to do a bit of research when you watch older films. And I'm not even talking about directly 1971 now. I think when I go in and watch a movie from the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, let alone if I go back to the silent era or something like that, like I do have to read up on it a little bit just so I can place this like what was going on in Hollywood, what was going on in the world, what was going on in this actor's life. And then, okay, some of this will start to make a little bit of sense. And I like doing that, but that doesn't mean that that's the proper way to watch it either. And I think that's the thing about films that transcend, which is that like, so for example, Helen has, you, you know, she refused to watch anything that is older than 15 Helen years old. Helen being your wife, my wife, by the way. She refuses to watch anything that's black and white. She doesn't really like musicals, but then mm -hmm. uh, I kind of negotiate with her to watch Casablanca. And she loved it right. because that's a film where you don't need to understand what's going on in World War II. The film builds itself up. It's like, yeah. it's, a, it's a film about these characters and it doesn't really need you to do any background research. It doesn't even need to be black and white or color. The story and the, sh the acting, it uh, supersedes that. And we see a few films that are capable of doing that. But yeah, but films like gangster films, you always need to... Cause the idea of a gang has evolved so much, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Drug trade, sex trade. Even now... Like, when I, we were talking about, you know, British crime dramas, like Lockstock is going to be very quaint to a world oh, sure. where allegedly seeing, yeah, women uh, grabbed off the street in white vans, even in Toronto. And like, uh, you know, we're learning all about this brutal sex trade. And the sex trade has existed as long as humans, as men are around. But with right. the uh, proliferation of internet, learning so deeply about what some of these women and survivors go through, it's changed the context of how we can even interpret a film like this uh, in the 70s when you watch this. I don't know. I don't know if people would be more callous, but it, it is hard watching it now. All the women characters in every film we've watched this year, or like The Sun, in, I, I'm bagging a little bit on uh, Big Jake, but you know, if I met my dad and the first thing he did was punch me in the face you know, as an adult, what is, what is that? Right? What, 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 right, right? what is that anymore? Well, he has a test if you're a man, yeah. Dave. I mean, that's just, <laughs> so, that's, just that's obvious. So, I don't know. I, I think that's a, that's a hard thing to get over. And, and we shouldn't be apologetic about it. And it is the hard part of watching this film because <laughs> it's a grind. Dave, you always grind my gears. Well, let's do some backstory here then. Get Carter was released on February 3rd, 1971. It's currently rated 7.4 on IMDb. It has an 80 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 33 critics, it's at 85%. And from 10,000 plus users, it is also at 85%. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes or on YouTube. And in Canada, at least right now, there is no place to legally stream it. As we have been seeing for a lot of 1971, coming up with like exact budgets, 
and uh, box office is a little bit tough. Uh, there's a bit of a disagreement over its budget. Some people say it was £750,000, and some people say it was $750,000, which is vastly two different things. <laughs> so, regardless, I said £750,000. In the UK, it made £8 million, That's pretty but I don't know what it made worldwide. So, in the UK, it, was, it did well. His plot description is, when his brother dies under mysterious circumstances in a car accident, London gangster Jack Carter travels to Newcastle to investigate. It stars Michael Caine as Jack Carter, Ian Hendry as Eric, Britt Eklund as Anna, George Sewell or Sewell as Khan, and Geraldine Moffat as Glenda. Anything you want to mention about these actors? Oh, well, we talked about Michael Caine at length when we yep. were upset that he won an Oscar. For that movie in right. 1999. You know, Ian Hendry, John Osborne, they have big write-ups because they're British actors, but we don't know anything about them. Yeah, Ian Hendry, in fact, was supposed to be the lead role in this movie. Oh, But I didn't know his that. career was tanking at the time as his alcoholism was ramping up. So yeah. the writer-producers decided, let's not, let's keep, we'll cast him. But Michael Caine is like the one that's ascending right now. So let's cast him in the lead role. Yeah, yeah. apparently in the 60s and 70s, Ian Hendry was really on an upward tick and uh, yeah, his lifestyle, his alcoholism really broke broke down his life. He, I mean, he he grew up apparently studying with Judy Dench and Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> right, so he had right, that right. level like of, uh, I don't know what do you want to call it. Those were his peers. Uh, in the end, this is really gross, but he died bankrupt with his third wife having to, to absorb all of this debt, even though he was rich from his work, right. uh, used to be wealthy from his work. He died of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. At 53 Oof. years old. That's not a good one. So, no. you know, stop drinking, people. It's gross. <laughs> John Osborne was uh, more of a playwright. He's also kind of a dick. He's got a fascinating history. <laughs> Apparently, his big thing, he blew up as a playwright as a young man, uh, writing sort of angry young man plays that revolutionized the British right. uh, theater scene. He's apparently got a whole history of being violent. <laughs> and hard to be around. He also died, I think, poor, diabetic, and uh, yeah, had a had a pretty brutal life. What's with the, like this year in 1971, every British actor we've talked about has either been like kidnapped, murdered, died of alcoholism. Like, it's like all of them have like these super depressing ends of their life, jumping off the top of a building to their deaths. It's like, Jesus Christ. I don't even think it's the British. I, I, I think it's, is it creative people? In general, I mean, there's something extreme about a personality that wants to do things that are in front of other people or testing boundaries. But yes, mm -hmm. like the number of people that succumb to that, either through drug addiction, sex addiction, gambling, alcoholism, suicide, fuck, depression. Right. I don't know. It's it's really sad. Britt Eklund was interesting. I, it's something I note here. It's Funny how often, because it's the 70s, we're getting into this idea of the sex symbol. You know, the women are known as yeah. sex symbols. The men are known as great actors with potential. I mean, it's just such a gender yeah, yeah. gender thing. But she got famous because she was married to Peter Sellers. Oh, there we go. The story is, because she's this beautiful Swedish model actress, when she's brought in um, by a talent scout, apparently Peter Sellers saw a picture of her arranged a meeting and proposed when they met. Jeez Louise. And they were married like three years. They had a kid together. And 
They divorced and she cited that he was uh, psychologically or physically abusive and he didn't contest. So apparently he was an asshole in his private life. I, I mean, implied. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, it's not even implied, like, <laughs> but they know he was an asshole in real life. There is actually an HBO movie that stars Jeffrey Rush called, I don't, it might even just be called The Life and Times of Peter Sellers now that I think of it. Anyway, some, who he plays Peter Sellers and yes, it's very clear how awful he probably was in his personal life that's the thing we talked about i don't remember which episode but about comedians i mean if you're gonna be a clown you gotta the tears of a clown kyle yeah there's uh there's a lot of trauma there brit's still alive she kind of has these uh small acting roles in tv etc but i just noted after peter sellers she had an affair with rod stewart after being introduced by joan collins which i think is hilarious and he actually wrote I don't know if you know Rod Stewart. I don't know his music. I just know about his hair. Well, but, uh, I mean. The song Tonight's the Night, Gonna Be All Right, yeah. is uh, written about her. She's on it. Yeah, the female oh, vo right. voice is hers. Tonight's the night. It's gonna be all right. Cause I love you, I mean, if you know I'm sexy, is probably his most yeah. famous song. So. And, his, and his tight pants. His tight pants. He was also the reason why I learned that rock stars don't have to be good looking to go and get it. Because uh, he's a strange looking man, but he's got the voice. Maybe he's like a Michael Caine in his early career he was. <laughs> but yes, yeah, in, when he's in his 70s still doing that, I'm like, <laughs> dude, like the leather pants can probably go at this point. It's how he hits the high register. Just got to keep him sucked up. Uh, I didn't get too much else. This is based on the book Jack's Return Home, written by Ted Lewis. The screenplay is by Mike Hodges, and it's directed by Mike Hodges. Now, just to do some other context setting, I did not go into super big detail with this, but apparently in the 60s especially, the rise of organized crime in the UK was on this huge upswing. Apparently, this like there was this Italian mob family that kind of came to the UK and kind of started to proliferate the illegal trades there and then what really made things come to the head was this case called the one-armed bandit murders which harrison Ford. You know, sounds yeah exactly it's, I, I mean like oh is this like the basis for the fugitive <laughs> no what they mean is that there is this big crime thing involving not vending machines vote uh, oh pink uh, slot machines yeah yeah slot pachinko. machines the one-armed bandit that you okay, pull yeah. up where someone showed up dead in the river and then they uncovered this huge conspiracy that was going on. So it's in that context that the book was written in the first place. From the time of publishing the book to the time that this movie came out, it was 10 months. Oh, like wow. this moved super quickly. Not only that, but it was actually adapted into two different films simultaneously. So there's this film, and then there is a black exploitation film called Hitman that comes out in 1972. Yes. Exact same plot. Uh, and in fact, that movie borrows some of the changed elements from this movie specifically. So it literally is like the same movie, but in a black exploitation film. We should watch that, not Stallone. Yeah. We should I know. find the Hitman. The other big thing, of course, is that as we've been discovering in 1971, by the late 1960s, the film industry of America and and other English-speaking countries were becoming a bit more, you know, brazen and bold Lucy in their Goosey. depictions of sex and yeah, and their depictions of sex and violence. Uh, Get Carter was explicitly developed to tap into the, that movement uh, and the changing culture surrounding it. The ball really got rolling though, because I was very common in its history. MGM was in bad financial trouble at the time, <laughs> which is basically like for 60 years of its it's existence, MGM yeah, has just, been in bad financial trouble. Say, well, it's MGM. 
They MGM'd it. So they were actually closing down their UK studios in this year. And we're looking to make basically smaller budgeted films that would hopefully turn a profit. Uh, I call that now the A24 strategy. <laughs> a little oh, bit of a joke. Uh, if you need to say it's a joke, it's not a joke. Michael Klinger was a film producer who had already made some British crime films. And it was him who came across the book Jack's Return Home, bought the rights. And then, by the way, Lewis has this very slight digression, author of the book. He wrote some other novels, but he actually also worked in animation, most famously as part of Yellow Submarine. Oh. So he animated part of Yellow Submarine, the movie, wow. which is wild to think about. This again, a lot of psychedelics. We talk about how small the Hollywood, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood was at the time. The UK was even smaller than that. Like everyone knew everyone and worked on everything. But anyways, Mike Hodges was working in television at the time. Mostly in news and documentary work, so he was familiar with creating television scripts, but this would be his first film. It was Klinger who contacted him to write and direct the film. My guess is because it was going to be really cheap to hire him as a first-time writer and director, just to save money. Now, in writing the script, a few changes were made from the book. One was the location, so it changed because Hodges himself was more familiar with Newcastle and uh, the surrounding areas. The other change was taking out the flashback scenes in the book that explained Jack Carter's relationship with his brother, mm. uh, which I personally would have actually enjoyed yes. if they had put those in there to make a little bit more context happen. However, the biggest change is the ending. So, f again, full spoilers, uh, but in the original novel, Jack Carter does not get shot at the end. Mm. So Hodges is the person who put that in because he saw this as what he calls a revenge tragedy, something similar you'd see in Shakespeare, like Titus, Andronicus, something like that, right? Where he goes on revenge and then everybody dies because he's so hell-bent on revenge. MGM, by the way, hated this decision because it meant that they couldn't do sequels if the movie became popular. It's funny, we brought that up. An American production company thought they could make a sequel. Who knew? <laughs> uh, Hodges went out, of course, and he's quoted as saying this. I wanted him to be dealt with in exactly the same way he dealt with other people. Now, that's sort of Christian ethic in a way. That was a prerequisite of the film for me, though, that the hitman should go click and that's it. Really, I'm going to now spoil The Sopranos for people. But interesting how that's kind of how that series ends as well, where it's just like, no, we're going to go to black and that's it. That's how the film ends. Listening to that, I just one script amendment, I think, would have made this work and maybe would have brought you back into his like we talked about our interpretations last week of uh john and his uh, best buddy staring at each other in uh mm. once upon a time dynamite fistful of uh, stuff if there was this acknowledgement of michael kane's character that this was going to the end no matter what and so if he was face to face with the final hitman and he kind of even shrugs and he's like oh what are you gonna do because like that yeah. is part of the lifestyle i think that would have been a little bit more slick than some guy at like 200 fucking yards yeah, out of nowhere again mgm really wanted a big american star so they could guarantee more box office uh but the producers suggested kane instead which mgm was okay with because again as we discussed kane's career was kind of on the upswing after alfie gambit and the italian job which had come out just like a year and a half before this movie showed up Klinger, the producer also wanted a distinct sound to the music and so he hired this jazz musician called roy budd 
I am definitely not familiar with Roy Budd's work, but he was kind of a big deal at the time, apparently. Uh, he and his band performed live tape. So mm. watching the film and just perform jazz for the soundtrack kind of live for most of the scenes. Uh, he would also compose three original songs for the movie that are included into the soundtrack as well. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because while it was not like an outright flop, it didn't necessarily like set the world on fire either when this movie came out. And essentially kind of gets forgotten in history for the next couple of decades. In the UK, critics hated this movie. Like it was panned completely. American critics are the ones who are a little bit more positive on it, weirdly enough. It was not really until it became available on home video in the 90s, though, that things started to change. Two people, Quentin Tarantino and Guy Ritchie, both commented on how influential they had found the film when when they had seen it as young men. And then this started this reappraisal of the movie and the context in which it came out. To the point where in 1999, the British Film Institute selected Get Carter as the 16th greatest British film of the 20th century. Oh, wow. And then in 2004, the magazine Total Film ranked it at number one. They felt it was the best British film ever made. And that is kind of where that is where it sits currently in like its estimation and its esteem as being at the very least top 20 (laughs) British films ever made. Oh, my God. This is why you can't trust critics. A bunch of idiots. Oh, oh my God. Kyle. I mean, hey, you're the one who loves this movie, no, Dave. I didn't hate it, but is this the best British movie ever made? Come on. That's where it gets a little bit like... Come on. I feel like that recurring Arrested Development joke and be like, her? <laughs> like, that's a, like the best British film. This one? Oh, All right. All right. Oh, I wanted to bring up this thing. This is such like a 70s, 80s thing. And I get why we don't do it nowadays because it looks goofy. But there was something charming, I will say, about seeing a dummy thrown off the roof. (laughs) And it's like it's flailing his arms and it crashes. I'm like, I know that's not a real person falling. I don't know. There's something to that. (laughs) There's just a dummy that they throw off a roof to to do the action sequence. I liked, in a sense, how when he goes finally berserk, like that death, I didn't actually expect that to go that way i mean he's already mm-hmm. getting the information out of him but we're learning just how brutal he is because he appears very kind of cold and disaffected through the whole first half of the film he's not fl- he's unflappable and mm-hmm. then when he gets flapped he just he gets unhinged and he's just killing every single person who uh lied to him that's the problem you never get flapped don't get <laughs> flapped uh yeah i mean there's some cheesy i mean it's the 70s so you know you have all your cheesy gunshot things like him picking up a branch to knock a guard out in a pond you know it's like really corny that is one of the other big things that really bugged me and especially when i read some of the reviews afterwards about like this amazingly filmed action sequences i'm like i don't understand what movie you're watching (laughs) because i actually found them to be filmed pretty poorly throughout the most of this like there's a scene that like that knifing scene where he knifes the guy There's a part of it's like, I can't even see what's going on. Like, it's weirdly blocked. His face is half, like, obscured by the person's shoulder. It's like, this is even visually interesting. What's going on here? Uh, and I know it's partly because, like, Mike Hodges is coming from documentary work. So he wanted to meet, like, oh, it's like fly on the wall and stuff like that. But it's like, I don't know. It, it was it was not visually arresting for me for most of this movie. I think the world we live in has become so hyper-realistic. I didn't mind 
you know, this idea of him getting shivved because yeah, it is supposed to be surprising. I just kept thinking like, there's no way that guy dies instantly getting stabbed in the stomach. Right. We all know now he's going to be groaning for like three hours and might even survive. <laughs> That's what pulled me I don't know if out. I've said this on the podcast before. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about that very thing is by Christopher Lee when he was filming the Lord of the Rings films. And they wanted the scene for uh, someone to be stabbed in the back. And he had to come up to Peter. He's like, a man stabbed in the back does not sound like this. This is what he sounds like. <laughs> and it's like, holy shit, Christopher. <laughs> like, he would probably know being like the ex like reconnaissance man that he was. There are like little nuances. I can understand why Tarantino and Guy Ritchie draw a lot of inspiration from this. Guy Ritchie too much now because his movies yeah. are overly complex. But that sequence where he finds that prostitute that was lying to him to protect you know the bosses and and then he like uh stalks her and he mm -hmm. buys the heroin you're like why did he buy heroin and then he brings her to the forest and you're like why is he make her undress because i'm like i don't really want to see another fucking rape i don't want to see another sexual assault yeah and then he uh od she ods and i'm like why is she naked like i don't understand and then frames the guy at the party and you're like oh right. interesting he's he's conniving you know he, he kind of put these <laughs> right. things together it's okay that he killed this woman. Well, I'm just yeah. saying like that's such a Tarantino guy <laughs> yeah, Ritchie yeah. thing where if it's done right and you build up to it, then you get that backtracking like, oh, the the plan was there from the beginning. When it's done wrong, they just kind of shove all these flashbacks in your face at the end of the film because they're like, oh, we forgot to shoot it. So uh, this is what actually happened. Right. This entire podcast feels like a bad flashback. Yeah. I mean, the one scene for me... I kind of keep going back and forth because I think I maybe understand why it's there in the first place, but it was so jarring to me is that the the kind of like the lounge singer scene, for lack of a oh, better yeah. word. The cat fight? <laughs> yeah, the cat fight. But she's like singing and it's good. Like she's not a bad singer or anything like that. And then... That might be a British she thing. She kisses, kisses yeah. the guy in the audience and then the woman just like beats the shit well, out of Well, not just that her. guy. And then there's she's, a cat fight and like... Yeah, she walks up to every... Not every, but several men. And she's mm -hmm. like crooning, serenading them. And then she kisses them on the lips. And I was like, this must be a Newcastle thing. Because I've never like, been in a bar they, yeah. where a woman. Are they gonna, that's what it feels like. They're just trying to show Newcastle as being kind of like, I don't know. Rough and low tumble. Rent. <laughs> yeah, well, rough that, and tumble people. And now I learned, I mean, it was like watching, uh, which Monty Python is it? Meaning of Life? Yeah. But, you know, I always wondered what row housing meant. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've you know you see those uh, thatched type of uh, right. brick structures in the yeah one of the Monty Python films. But seeing it again and and seeing how we live now, it it really struck a chord with me about the idea of poverty. And you know, watching some British films and TV and soccer and all this stuff, it, it, Guy Ritchie loves doing this. You know, creating that class and what do you call it? You're talking bringing up earlier like north, south, east, Cla west. Yeah, class distinctions. Yeah, yeah, they have different accents. They have different uh, euphemisms. So you see that. I, you know what would have made it more jarring? I think is if at the beginning we saw London at all and had a visual cue that going to Newcastle is different. Because like when you watch French Connection, New York's just New York. It's a shithole. But it's not like trying to pretend that they had to go to Jersey. Like, that's what they do now. They make fun of right. Jersey. They're like, oh, now you're in Jersey. I don't know anything about New York or New Jersey. But, you know, if you don't show that New York's like all high fashion and fancy streets, you're not going to get the joke making fun of New Jersey. Right. So, yeah, there are I know, it's a lot of missed things. I, I can't understand how this is the number one British film 
ever made. It is not that good. <laughs> uh, I just found <laughs> it interesting. Little, like I said, like just in the context, I'm not even going outside like past 1971, just looking at other films of 1971, granted not from Britain, but still it's like I, there's better examples of what it's trying to do that have come out in 1971. Sure. For me. Yeah. I mean, isn't like Lawrence Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai, aren't those all British films? Yeah, David Lean yeah. was British, so yes. I mean, the, I, I can just name two that are you know, off the top of my head that should more than be number one. This this shouldn't right. even be on a list. You know what attracts me to this film? It's why I kept thinking this is the British connection. It's that same feel where when I'm in it, I mean, there are parts that pull you out for sure, but when I'm in it, I'm interested in yeah that suspense, that tension, the uh, idea of a uh, antihero. It's why we like the uh, samurai and the... Leone yeah, films, I mean, I, you know, bad guys doing stuff. That is the one thing I wrote down too, is I think what prevents us from being like an absolute travesty in my eyes. Like this is not like a a one star film for me. It's not a duck. Stretch of the yeah. But uh, there is this sense of danger that Michael Caine brings to this role where it's like, oh yeah, this guy's going to snap at any time. He's playing it like calm and cool in this scene. And the, but when he finally explodes and kind of goes on that war path in like the final third, it's like, yeah, I could see that. I could, <laughs> He's going to win. I felt like that. It's going to felt like that was going to happen the entire time. I guess I was just looking for a little bit more context. Like we mentioned, providing that context of the the brother relationship, mm-hmm. which apparently brings a lot more of the why into this, other than just being a brother that he hasn't seen for fifteen years or so. I think would have gone a long way. And uh, just a little bit of tightening up of some of those like technical aspects. I think I probably would have enjoyed this film a lot more. Yes. You know, and that's, I think that's also the danger, I suppose, or the uh, pitfall of writing stories like this, where you have the anti-hero or a bad person, like French Connection. Uh, was it Alex or was it Matt? You and Matt both got caught up in evaluating Popeyes as a human being. Oh, that that was Alex. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, you and Alex got caught up in this idea that I need to like Popeye Doyle. And, you know, you can't write that story with a likable cop. It's just not going to work. And this is a film that's the same thing. Like, I don't want to like Michael Caton. And it's why at the end, I'm like, I'm glad he died. I, whether he, he died yeah. the right way. But uh, he's disgusting, you know. he He's manipulative. He's cold, right? He's sociopathic. He hates women. And uh, there's nothing, you know, redeemable about him except... And it takes too long for us to learn. I mean, he's got a strong relationship with his estranged brother. And it takes probably three quarters of the film before he starts talking about his brother's characteristics. Like, he would never do that. And you're like, oh, Hmm. that's a very strong idea because I don't know anything about him. (laughs) You're not giving me any information. It took me a little while to even understand you were in a different city looking for your brother's killer. Yeah, it's... Not a great film, but I... Dave, you have gone, uh, I feel like, a 180 here. Uh, you started off saying how much you like this movie, and now you're down to, like, it's not a great film. Well, so where, where are we standing here? What I was going to say is, I think what made me appreciate it more was my thought at the end of implying the intent to challenge mm-hmm. the viewer's uh, relationship with the subject matter, which is the sex trade. Particularly, and maybe this is why, I, I don't know if this is a fair thing to say, but I think cisgendered heterosexual men have a particular relationship with pornography. And I think it'll be much more challenging for us because uh, many of those scenes will be inherently arousing, uh, whether we want it to be or not. And uh, you will have to stop. I I will say this. There is another film that we have talked about that I kept thinking about while watching this film, which was 8mm from 1999, right? When we talked about that movie. 
which deals with some similar subject matter. It's not quite the same um, story. We both really did not like that movie at all. And if I had seen this movie beforehand, I think I would have hated it even more. Just because at least this movie, I think, is attempting to grapple with that idea, which I don't think that other, which I don't think 8mm even tries to attempt to answer that question about that relationship that men have with pornography and then the damaging effects it can have and like the warped worldviews that can start to happen when that is the uh, most common or sometimes awfully the only way that you interact with women on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. I mean, it's any wonder we have, you know, terms like incel and all this stuff that's starting to come out in our modern era. I think all that comes out because of pornography and, uh, this ideation, this uh, fantasy of yeah, what a woman is like, not just as an object anymore, but it's like, uh, it's weird. It's violent. It's inherently violent. I brought this up last week too in our uh, Ducky Sucker episode. But the thing about writing in this era, uh, particularly movies of this nature, is I think that underlying question is uh, when do you start caring? And in this case, Michael Caine only actually gives a shit when it is harming his niece. He actually doesn't give that much of a shit that his brother's dead either. And we don't know anything about whether his brother deserved to die. Well, I think it's just because it's like, I know he wouldn't die this way. So something is weird. And it felt like an obligation, right? He's like, well, it's my brother. I have to just make sure. But as soon as it's his niece, because he's watching porn, he's having violent sex with all these women. And this is the thing that I think hooked me in at the end. So I was like you, I was really grinding my teeth a little bit. It's very shocking. I have to wrestle with myself because yeah, some of those sexualized scenes are the pornography I grew up watching. So, you know, I'm just yeah. like, okay, I've, I've uh, been aroused by this before. Saturday morning cartoons, huh? hardcore pornography. Softcore. And then- Cal, There's okay, only one softcore. penis. No, yeah. uh, and then by the end, this is the problem that, uh, it's not just porn, but we never ask that question. Like, what if it's my brother or my sister, my dad, my kid? It's, it's why I think when people have kids, their taste in films and uh, change. Uh, things change. Cause you're like, oh wait. <laughs> I can't, well, you I see can't imagine too. this, you know? I mean, talking about being an apologist, I mean, I run into this a lot. It's one of those things where I am cursed with, like, seeing both sides sometimes. But how the acceptance of gay, lesbian, trans people, bisexual people in our culture, you really start to see the tide turn when more and more people come out and they're like, oh, well, I have a friend who is, or I have a family member who is, or this person that I work with is, that is when people start to have that thing change in their brain, which is like, oh, it's not this like evil thing that has been presented to me for so long, or this terrible life choice that's gonna end in death that every movie seems to uh, imply from like the 60s through the early 90s. It does take that family member, or it does take that friend uh, to come out sometimes for them to be like, oh, well, no, 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 no. Like, I support them. And yeah, of course, we should change laws. And we sh- of course, we should do this. The criticism that sometimes has is like, why does it have to be someone you care about before you actually care about this issue? And I think that the, the awful truth is that because that's how humans work. You don't really care about something unless it is directly affecting you in the first place. It's easy to put off climate change. It's easy to put off any number of things until it's literally 100% affecting you on a daily basis. We're going to see attitudes towards vaccination now that Calgary is under a pile of smoke for two months. And what I'm reading, it might be this way until winter, people in Calgary are going to start caring about climate more because they're coughing Mm -hmm. when they go outside. This is not new. Uh, There are books written about this since the dawn of time, you know, the self-centered nature of people. I think that some of Hollywood 
and writing, movie writing has, especially in America, tries to hide this under the veneer that people are supposed to be good. It's a very Judeo-Christian uh, bullshit, but because they're not actually like that in principle and action, but they posit that human beings are these like ironically angels, which we're supposed to be opposed to, right? But that yeah. a, a person is naturally good and we don't commit sin. And when you do that, you should just uh, die. It's the opposite. We're all uh, Jack Carter, whatever his name is. We're all people that are dissociative until it becomes our problem uh, to varying degrees. So Kyle's an apologist, so he's sensitive to a lot more. And then there's people who are sociopaths who are not sensitive to anything. That's fine. I like watching movies like this. When you think about it, the mafia did have some good points to it, though. You know like, what, you really break it down. Well, here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, is it any different than any political party? Right? Is it any different than any union? <laughs> Honestly, Kyle. Like, what at least they're on. I mean, that's what we talked about actually in Godfather 2. Yeah. It's like, where are the like, lines? What's, what's the difference between us and the politicians? At least we're honest about it, that we're killing people, like, where, whatever. Where are the lines? It's weird. It's very yeah. arbitrary. And this goes back again to the coding issues that, so the idea of the Italian mafia is, is a bygone thing. Whether they still exist, I don't know. I don't want to get shot. So maybe they do. Who knows? You better not be disrespecting my family. Uh, how human beings interact with each other, how they govern each other. Come on. I mean, is it any different? Are people not, it's like we, uh, Alain de, de Cole, whatever, you know, having this person wash up in a dumpster right. who turned out to be the next prime minister of France. This is, they're not different. So you can send letters to David Yun, care of Kyle and Dave Industries at P.O. Box. We're dealing with the comments as uh, good-naturedly as we can. <laughs> yeah. We're done here. Uh, all right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap this up. So we should probably answer the question, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? What is your opinion on that? I mean, I, I will say only culturally relevant because we haven't dealt with this problem, but not culturally relevant in the way it's depicted. So, you know, sex trade is still out there. We still have problems with pornography, but this is a pretty dated construction of that conversation. And it's, it's quite hard to watch because it's, um, you know, it's a male chauvinistic 70s film. Uh, does it hold up? I think there that noir feeling still holds up a little bit on the pieces in between and some of that build up when he goes uh, berserk. But as a whole thing, if you're not going to do what I did and try to justify some of its intention, because I, I'm implying it. I don't know if the director even meant it or if they were just right. kind of like Death in Venice, just getting off on the idea that they could uh, show more naked women on the screen. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm a, I think I'm at a no yes here. I don't think this holds up. At least it didn't for me. I did not really enjoy my experience watching it. There are, again, a few scenes here and there that I think I enjoyed the construction of and Michael Caine does well but I do think it's culturally relevant I do think that yeah like the themes it's proposing are good I think there's a reason why it was remade in 2000 it would not surprise me if they tried to remake this again whether they call it get Carter is I don't know but I think that no, there is going to be this drive it's called taken yeah. yeah I think that that's where its influence is in like British crime movies you can see how this influenced later filmmakers so I think there there is a bit of it just briefly, because I did watch this week that 2000 remake, and it's awful. Like, just dog shit awful. Which bums me out, because it's one of those times where it's an awful movie, and you have these great people in there. Like You have Alan Cumming in this movie. Uh, Michael Caine returns in this like little bit part in, in the movie. I make fun of him, but Mickey Rourke is actually not bad in the movie. It's just like, all the dialogue is awful it is so atrocious what they're having these people say i think rachel lee cook is good in the movie as well stallone is 
absolutely miscast. I think the part of the reason, I think that Get Carter works because it's not a big muscle-bound person going on this revenge tale. It's like, in many ways, it looks like a business guy coming back to his hometown and then enacting revenge. It's like this working-class guy who grew up in Newcastle who's coming back. So whether it's like a working-class guy from jersey or new york or wherever it happens to be and then being like my brother's dead i'm going to go back and i'm going to exact vengeance i think it works better that way i think and you know people get mad at me i actually do think sylvester stallone can be a good actor in many projects that he's in yeah he is so wooden and so bland in this lead role and i was like i don't get it i don't understand why it is the funny story is this it was panned so much in america they did not even release that remake in the uk Mm. I also will say it's got that dumb 2000s, early 2000s thing where like every camera angle is like tilted and shifted and like <laughs> weirdly zoomed in. I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, just art. frame the goddamn shot. It's like, art, why Kyle. are we doing this? It's edgy. Uh, <laughs> that's how you show grit with uh, giving so. people nausea. I mean, that's Dutch angles everywhere. <laughs> like, that's what it felt like to me. Was it sh- At least it wasn't shaky cam. Talking about critics. Both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael did talk about this movie, although Pauline Kael, I had to piece together from articles that were written about this movie that included comments from her. Uh, she's harder to, to search for sometimes. This is what Roger Ebert said. Oh, I should point out, both of them really liked it. So Roger Ebert said, Get Carter is a tense, hard-boiled crime movie that uses Michael Caine for once as the sure possessor of all his unconscious authority. Kane has been mucking about in a series of pot boilers, undermining his acting reputation along the way. But Get Carter shows him as sure, fine, and vicious, a good hero for an action movie. Carter moves through a world of working-class pubs, boarding houses managed by sad-eyed and warm-voiced widows, and off-track bedding parlors. The sort of proletarian detail is unusual in a British detective movie. Usually we get all flash and no humanity, lots of fancy camera tricks, but no feel for the criminal strata of society. So I just think interesting that he points it out because that's, again, something that maybe we would have not known. (laughs) Well, we don't know from not knowing the context of all the films that have been released up to this point. Pauline Kael says there's nobody to root for but the smartly dressed sexual athlete and professional killer Michael Caine in his English gangland picture, which is so calculatedly cool and soulless and nastily erotic that it seems to belong to a new genre of virtuoso viciousness. A little bit of a tongue twister in that last sentence there, I think. (laughs) But I always find interesting about reading these from like at the time is that they are not being influenced by the next 50 years of films that uh, that people are influenced by. They're like, no, like as of right now, like this is what it feels like. It feels new, it feels fresh, it feels interesting. Where we are probably like, well, we've seen everything that's been influenced by these films is now too. And coming back to it feels a little bit uh, precious sometimes. Well, I am interested to know what you're going to rate this movie here, Dave. But uh, that is what Dave and I thought. And we would love to know what you think. So you can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave, VSTheMachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to yell at us in written form, you can go to our YouTube channel and leave a comment on any of the videos. We do usually on the Mondays a trailer reaction to the film that we're going to be talking about that week on the podcast. The lowest form of entertainment, apparently. The lowest (laughs) form of entertainment, as a recent commenter has uh, said. (laughs) And then on the Fridays, we do kind of a mini like video review of the movie as well. Kind of a recap of our podcast. 
Uh, of course, if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So, Dave, what do you think you would rate this movie out of five? I think my gut, the number that pops into my head is a three. A mm-hmm. three. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I would tell people to go out and watch it, but if someone said they were going to rent it, I wouldn't tell them. I wouldn't scream and s- slap the controller out of their hand. <laughs> um, I would always preface this if I was telling someone, they were, uh, if someone told me they're watching that, yeah, it, you have to be a little bit apologetic for some of it. It's right. a grind. But, you know, I, lo- I thought it was interesting. I'm going to buy you a t-shirt that just says apologist across the chest. A matching one. Weirdly enough, I'm not super far away from you. Like I said, there some of those elements that I did like was able to bump up my score a little bit. So I'm giving this a 2.5. So I would probably put this at least at the 17th best British film of all time. <laughs> I, I can't even believe this would crack like the top 100. But I mean, I, I guess influentially. I mean, if influentially, yeah, yeah, if yeah. people like it uh, and try to make it better, not get Carter the remake, mm. but you know, Guy Ritchie. I mean, honestly, as soon as I said Taken, I'm like Taken. Is probably inspired by this film, except they're like, instead of a gangland, he's a ninja assassin. But it's the right. same thing. He doesn't give a shit about anything until let's not kill him taken. at the end so we can do five sequels. <laughs> this time they take Van K. Jansen. Well, Dave, that is going to tie with three current films on our list of films from 1971. So from top to bottom, we have Sunday Bloody Sunday, Red Sun, and A New Leaf. So where do you think you would put Get Carter in that list? Uh, above New Leaf and below the yeah. other two. I like Red Sun actually better because yeah. of how it could have been. <laughs> Why didn't they just get a good director? I mean, that movie should be a five. I'll never get over how cool <laughs> that idea is. And they had such great actors. And the pl- yeah. it's well-written. <laughs> like, That's right. It has all these elements that are good, it's right. like, but it just doesn't work. I, I agree with you. I definitely think like, we keep coming back to this. I just think Sunday Blaze Sunday, the further I get away from it, the more I like that yeah, movie. It should be so <laughs> so it should be probably higher on our list than what it is. So I'm definitely putting it below Sunday Blaze Sunday. Another British film, by the way. Sunday Blaze yeah, Sunday. How is that not in the top, right? Maybe it is. Maybe I, we should see the list before we claim that it's not there. But and I agree. I I've read Sun, like again, going back to that question is always asked to me of like gun to your head, like you have to watch one of these two films. What are you gonna pick? I would probably go with Red Sun. Yeah. There's enough like fun that I had with that movie uh, that I didn't really have. They started uh, a brush fire. One. If Michael Caine had started a brush <laughs> fire, you know, maybe you know, could have got some points. But uh, you just chased a dude for 10 minutes on the beaches of North England. That means that entering our list at the new number 14 position is Git Carter. I guess we should see what we're reviewing here next week, Dave. I'm just going to push this button here. Okay, well, we're going to stay in like pretty bleak worldview filmmaking here next week we're going to be watching the original not the remake straw dogs Mm. what's the remake there was a 2011 version of straw dogs that came out do you have you seen straw dogs before i don't think so yeah all right well (laughs) get ready (laughs) that's all i need to know it's like, it's going to be an interesting right. conversation i think next week but but i one thing i forgot to mention i also find it interesting that in the early 70s, 
late 60s, early 70s. Michael Caine is in four movies. All have been remade. So the, the Italian Job, Alfie, Get Carter, and Sleuth have all been remade. Two of them, he actually was actually in the remake as well. But for some reason, they really like to remake Michael Caine movies in like the early 2000s for whatever reason. Like, it was almost good. I'm surprised they haven't done Red Sun yet. I mean, they've got everything. They've got everything. I'm telling you, filmmakers, like, there's talent out there. Remake Red Sun into a great movie, because it's this, it's right there. You know, the problem is... I still know, who would you pick up for Bronson? I was going to say, we don't have a Mifune, Mifune, we don't have a Bronson anymore. So, what's what's that Korean singing group? B, BTS? BTS? Yeah, you could get BTS to do it. Everybody loves BTS. Oh, uh, I have such a boner for that movie. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, then you could call it a fistful of dynamite, <laughs> and they could sing their hit song, David. All works. Oh, my God. Uh, anyways, can you, just, uh, can you just hand me your iPad there? Uh, fine. But uh, I'm sorry in advance. Oh, this. That's slimy. If you need to say it's a joke, it's not a joke.